Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Jesus Unhinged, The Cleansing of the Temple. It's for the second Sunday in Lent, March 15, 2009. Think about your earliest memories and images of Jesus. If you are white, American, and Protestant, you might visualize a painting by Warner Salmon, the head of Christ from 1940. Jesus with flowing blonde hair and saccharine blue eyes. Salmon's Jesus, reproduced 500 million times according to one estimate, stares into space. He's clean, safe, passive, and effeminate which is perhaps why Christians have plastered this image in many a child's Sunday school room. It's hard to fathom why such a harmless and respectable-looking citizen would ever be arrested, beaten to a pulp, and crucified by establishment authorities. He wouldn't hurt a flea. Warner Salmon's painting illustrates how easily we domesticate the deity. Creating Jesus in our own image so that we can then co-opt him for our own purposes. The reading this week from John's Gospel, chapter 2, challenges all such self-serving projections. The so-called cleansing of the temple, a delicate euphemism to describe the only violent act of Jesus, occurs in all four Gospels. It's an unnerving story that reminds us that there's no such thing as business as usual with Jesus, and that all who come to him must come on his terms, not ours. All three synoptic writers situate this story at the end of Jesus' ministry. They sandwich it between his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the parables of the tenants. On the other hand, John places the story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In my Bible, on the third page of his Gospel, where, except for the wedding at Cana in Galilee, it looms as the very first public act by Jesus. Maybe there was more than one temple cleansing, one at the beginning and one at the end of his ministry. But given the radical nature of the act, that seems improbable. Furthermore, the verbatim literary similarities in all four gospel accounts, and the fact that John mentions three or even four distinct Passovers in his gospel, signal that John cares more about theological confession than chronological precision. As an observant Jew, Jesus joined the throngs of pilgrims who trekked to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover at the temple. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, construction on the temple began in 20 BC under Herod the Great and was completed by Herod Agrippa around 63 AD. A bustling nexus of commercial activity, crowds of worshipers, national aspirations, political identity, historical memory, architectural splendor, and of religious affiliation, 
The temple constituted the essence of Jewish faith in both a literal and a symbolic manner. When Jesus entered the temple, he encountered men selling cattle, sheep, and doves to the pilgrims who needed them to make their obligatory sacrifices. They also needed to exchange their Roman currency into Jewish money in order to pay the temple tax in the coinage of the so-called sanctuary shekel. And thus we read that Jesus also met the money changers. At that point, all hell broke loose. Incensed at the sacrilege of it all, Jesus imp improvised a whip, thrashed the animals from the temple, scattered the coffers of the money changers, and overturned their temples. How dare you turn my father's house into a market, Jesus exclaimed. Later, his disciples remembered Psalm 69, verse 9, and attached a sense of prophetic fulfillment to the event. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's not clear whether Jesus objected to any and all commercial activity in the temple out of principle, even honest transactions that were necessary for pilgrims to fulfill their religious obligations, or whether he excoriated the fraud, exploitation, and avarice of the religious authorities, who controlled the means of ritual purity and thus access to God. When asked to justify his violent actions with a sign, Jesus refused. Instead of any interpretation, justification, or explanation, he responded with an enigmatic saying, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Long after the event, his disciples interpreted Jesus' saying as a prediction of his death and resurrection. In his dramatic outbursts, Jesus joined a violent act with an enigmatic saying that has elicited several layers of interpretation. A few people see a prophetic prediction of the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 AD. A simpler interpretation understands the story as a restoration or purification of the temple to its sacred purpose, as a place of prayer for all people without manipulation or exploitation by the establishment gatekeepers. A third nuance suggests that in his own body, in his own life and impending death and resurrection, that John mentions on the first pages of his gospel, Jesus fulfills all the functions of the temple building as the place to meet God. To be sure, in the words of the British New Testament scholar C.K. Barrett, here, as in all of John's Gospel, we are to understand that, quote, in Jesus the eternal purposes of God find their fulfillment. No doubt, no doubt the disciples tossed and turned a long, sleepless night that evening. It must have been terribly disconcerting to witness Jesus unhinged, throwing furniture, screaming at the top of his lungs, flinging money into the air. Maybe they ran for cover with the crowd. Did they look him in the eyes the next morning? Or shuffle their feet, 
stare at the ground and make small talk. I liken their experience to the so-called crazy uncle syndrome. Who could predict the next outrageous act or embarrassing outburst? I read the cleansing of the temple as a stark warning against any and every false sense of security. Misplaced allegiances, religious presumption, pathetic excuses, smug self-satisfaction, spiritual complacency, nationalist zeal, political idolatry, and economic greed, all in the name of God, are only some of the tables that Jesus would overturn in his day and in our own. Church is more than a place to enjoy a night of bingo or a place to reinforce my prejudices and illusions. Thank God, then, for the psalm this week, which concludes with a prayer that is wonderfully appropriate this Lenten season. In Psalm 19, 12-14, we read, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now for further reflection. How and why have we domesticated Jesus into a meek and mild Savior? To what extent did Jesus use violence in cleansing the temple? Consider how some of our deepest religious impulses and practices, in this story, the temple, lead us astray. How might we avoid all forms of false religious security? And finally, consider the ways that we sanitize the Jesus story. For books this week, I review George Marsden, A Short Life of Jonathan Edwards, Grand Rapids, Erdman's 2008, 152 pages. Those Americans who have heard of Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 1758, often remember him for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. All sorts of caricatures have been propagated based upon that single sermon. In this abbreviated biography, George Marsden, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Notre Dame, gives readers the most essential and most engaging aspects of the genuine Jonathan Edwards. Marsden is acknowledged as the premier historian of Edwards in the world today. His full-length biography, called simply Jonathan Edwards, A Life, Yale University Press, 2003, has won at least nine book awards. Jonathan Edwards epitomized the Puritan heritage of his pre-revolutionary day, a time when clergy were the best educated and the most influential citizens. 
Whereas the Puritans were a beleaguered minority in England, they were the first and largest group to settle New England, and so they enjoyed a sort of cultural monopoly. Edwards was the only boy in a family with ten sisters. He entered what eventually became Yale College at the age of 13, and after a stint in New York City, in 1726 he moved to a church in Northampton, Massachusetts. Northampton was a town of a thousand people, about a hundred miles west of Boston. For the next 22 years, Edwards cared for his flock. He welcomed George Whitfield and became a leading advocate and historian of the Great Awakening revivals, fathered ten children with his wife Sarah, and wrote some of the most important works in American religious history. For example, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God, in his other book, Treatise on Religious Affections. Late in 1748, Edwards was ousted from the church for his more restrictive views on church membership and the sacraments. After a short period as a missionary to Indians in Stockbridge, Edwards was appointed president of Princeton in January of 1758 only to die of a smallpox inoculation eight weeks later at the age of 54. In George Marsden's words, Jonathan Edwards was a passionate visionary, a world-class intellectual, and an intense ascetic who lived in a very real world of a large energetic family in a volatile and often contentious village. In his final chapter, Marsden suggests what we might learn from Edwards. He concludes that, most of all, Edwards was a man of God-centered integrity and remarkable consistency of his life and thought. Jonathan Edwards, in sum, combined intellectual rigor, pastoral care, and spiritual passion, all for the glory of his God. For film this week, I review Waltz with Bashir from 2008, an Israeli film. An animated bio-documentary? Yes. Writer, director, and producer Ari Fullman was disturbed one night when his friend Boaz recounted a recurring nightmare in which he's hounded by a snarling pack of 26 dogs. That nightmare is clearly connected to his service in the Israeli army during the Lebanese War of 1982. But for his part, Ari remembers very little about his life as a soldier. And so, in this animated film, he interviews nine friends who were comrades at the same time in order to find out exactly where he was, what he did, and, more importantly, who he was and who he became because of the war. On the personal level, the film explores moral guilt, uncontrollable fear, abandonment, the, real, the reliability of remembered history, <clears throat> the traumas of war, the boundary lines between the real and the surreal, 
and suppressed memories. On the political level, the film recalls a particular historical atrocity. The massacre of about 3,000 Palestinians, mainly civilians, by Christian phalangist fighters at the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps in order to avenge the assassination of Lebanon's newly elected president, Bashir Gamaliel. An investigation by the Israeli government later established its complicity in the atrocity. Can film not serve as a sort of therapy? asks one of Ari Fulman's friends. In his words, the answer is yes. Waltz with Bashir. In Hebrew, with English subtitles. And for poetry this week, we continue our Lenten prayers by Father Thomas Hopko taken from his book, The Lenten Spring, St. Vladimir's Press, 1983. A Lenten prayer for the third Sunday in Lent by Thomas Hopko. O my gracious Savior, be my healer and redeemer, and cast me not away. Raise me up when you see me fallen, lying in sin, since you are all-powerful that I may know your deeds and cry out to you before I perish completely. Save me, O Lord. Thomas Hopko, A Lenten Prayer Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March fifteenth, two 2009, the third Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.